All right, welcome to the Billings Police Department Unfiltered Podcast, Episode 1, The Basics. I'm Lieutenant Brandon Woolley, and today I'm here with uh, Chief Rich St. John. Chief, welcome. Uh, Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate you having me in. Chief, how long have you been in law enforcement? Uh, This is my 40th year. I started with the police department in 1981 and have uh, made it this long, been chief for uh, 14 years. Did you think 40 years ago that, one, you would be chief, and that, two, you'd be sitting in a recording room recording a podcast to put on the Internet for everybody to hear? Uh, No to both of those questions. Um, You know, early on, uh, you know, I think probably uh, knowing what I did about the department at that time, it would have been a a pretty pretty good aspiration to make it to the rank of a captain, which at that point was was running a division. Um, I was the fourth chief in a year and a half. Uh, there were some issues going on at the police department and and uh, moved through them pretty quickly. And I was, uh, you know, wondering about the wisdom of that move if you're going to get shot out of the saddle like a Civil War um, <laughs> um, uh, general. Uh, but, um, you know, my boss uh, and his boss ultimately did not get along very well, and uh, and they both ended up leaving, and, and, uh, and I got promoted, and the— uh, then assistant city administrator became my boss, and that was Tina Volick, and uh, we've worked we worked very well together over the years, and and um, you know she retired a couple of years ago, and I'm still here. So good. So I think for like listeners, as we kind of start this, this is something new for us. Uh, could you shed a little bit of light on like what what's different about policing and our organization today than it was 40 years ago? Well, I think uh, the uh, the emergence of um, the cell phone, uh, the uh, the electronics, the social media, uh, the the videos that uh, have really uh, brought policing to the forefront and in real time. Uh, when I started, we obviously had none of that. Uh, we didn't have portable radios. The ones that we had, you had to share. Uh, the equipment in the car uh, was basically your um, siren, light bar, and radio. Uh, the, the things that we have in there now, uh, if, if people were to look, it looks like a fighter plane uh, with all of the stuff and very little room for the officer to actually sit. Uh, so the technology part has really, really um, uh, you know, changed how, how policing uh, has taken place, and, and it's for the better. Um, officers are um, are very adept, and it just goes with with our generational changes as well. You know, we go from uh, you know the veteran baby boomers into your uh, Gen X, Gen Ys, and millennials right now, and that's a whole different um, you know mindset on on coming to work and the technology, uh, um, how they handled a chain of command, for example. Um, as you're aware, we're a paramilitary structure, so you generally go through the chain of command if you have a question or if you want to ask something. Um, younger officers, uh, some of them were latchkey kids, and they are used to um, finding things out on their own, and it doesn't bother them a bit to bypass three levels of command to come to the chief's office to ask a question because that's where the, where the answer lies. Uh, so, um, you know, we've made those shifts, we've made those adjustments, we, we have embraced all of our generational things, and I think uh, uh, what the citizens have seen is just, um, you know, uh, this department flourishing and growing um, in the things that, that we do. Uh, and a lot of it's just letting our officers be creative. 
we set parameters. Uh, inside the parameters, I'll support you. I may not disagree. I may disagree with you, uh, but you know, I expect you to make good, solid decisions. Go out and be proactive. Um, not have to ask questions of your boss all the time. Uh, you know, we always say, "What would you do if I weren't here?" Go do that. And uh, obviously, there are boundaries. Um, but um, you know what that has resulted in, I think, is a very, very uh, proactive, creative police department. And the reason, and one, one example of that right here is we're sitting here, you know, doing a podcast, um, you know, talking about the police department. Absolutely. <coughs> and and I was actually headed there next because the the um, you know with this I'm the intention behind this podcast is to scratch beyond the surface and get down and, and be some more transparent with the community. Uh, educate and inform about the organization and really kind of show more than what you see the officer you know uh, rolling around every day and there's a lot more to this department than than what is on the surface and, and what we've shown in the past um, so yeah we we appreciate that ability to have that freedom and and to be able to make maneuvers like this so yeah I mean I, I think uh, uh, the one thing that I will take credit for is surrounding myself with good people and uh, then letting those people uh, go out and do what they do best and uh, sometimes I get left behind it's uh, you know you, you read about something in the paper and it would have been nice to know but that's but that's the type of people that we have and that's the type of structure that we have set up um, and, and you know in the business world you're calling it decentralization and that's exactly what it is this is a big organization 24 7 responsible for providing law enforcement services there is no way that one person or even two can effectively and efficiently know about and manage or even be a content expert on all the things that we get into. And so it just makes perfect sense to push that down and let people do what they do. There are rules, there are guidelines, and um, you know we, we do hold our people accountable if they step outside of those. But I think um, overwhelmingly when you look at the successes, the accomplishments of the department over the, over the past years, um, you will see that that model works very well for us. You know, and building on that, I think what you're what you're referring to, and I'd like you to talk about a little bit next would be is, you know, you 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 use the quality around you. Everybody has a strength and a weakness. You get that diversity of of characteristics. Um, can you speak to some of the quality difference of what type of quality we are today versus yesterday? Obviously. You know, yesterday's officers set the foundation for us, but what we are quality-wise versus what we were years ago? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, ultimately uh, this is a people business, and the ability to communicate, relate with people, um, think on your feet has never changed. Uh, the, uh, the reporting aspects, the requirements from the justice system, uh, and then overarching all of our um, um, technological you know, computers in the car, whatnot. When I started, we had a pad of reports and we used carbon paper in between two, uh, in between two pieces. And that was your original and that was your working copy. So you can see now we have, you know, in-car reporting, it's sent wirelessly to various locations. So, you know, the technology has really changed, but the, the very essence of, of policing I don't think that that changes from the from the professionals that you have. I mean, we have veterans, we have people that were uh, school teachers, um, you know, a, across the board. So it's the ability to communicate. I've always told people this when we, you know, go out and you're recruiting is that um, 
you know, uh, I need you to have people skills. I need you to be able to read, write, communicate, talk, relate with people, and I'll teach you to do the rest in policing. But if you can do that on the front end, um, you know, you're going to be successful in this business. So translate today, uh, or, um, you know, moving into that, that quality is what we look for. We hire for attitude. And we will train you. Um, we will train you on the rest of the stuff. And, um, you know, of course, different skill sets. We're seeing a, a very, very educated um, uh, work crew that comes this direction. Obviously, our veteran pool is different than what we were seeing. Um, when I started, you're seeing, uh, you know, Vietnam era, post-Vietnam era. Well, now we're seeing, um, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, veterans that are coming. So you have different, you know, uh, different world and life experiences that are coming uh, to us. Uh, and then ultimately, I think the expectations of the public um, have changed as well. And I think... What you're seeing nationally, uh, the expectations, the uh, uh, the uh, you know the demand for transparency, the demand for accountability, um, is much much more than there was uh, when I first started. Not that it wasn't there, but certainly not to the level uh, of what you're seeing now. Yeah, I think that's really kind of the the drive behind the idea of this is. You know, we use uh, the media, we use social media, we use all forms of communicating with the public. And they all have their separate purpose. You know, the, the Twitter that we developed and, and started using is mainstream, but that's kind of their, our area where we uh, give out real-time information on active events that we're trying to get people to know. You know, Facebook has a different little bit of methodology to it where, you know, you're, you're communicating, but uh, long, long conversations and real tough issues aren't, aren't the place for that. Uh, you know, the, the media is as good as they are to us a lot of the times with covering, covering stories. Uh, they still have a uh, lot of news and other stories that they have to show on their half-hour show or in other newspaper articles. And, and uh, you know, something like this allows us to be able to really scratch the surface and go a little bit deeper into some of these issues. So hopefully that will be a little bit more successful with uh, doing some engagement with the community with this. Well, I think it's nothing but nothing but positive and it is the uh, electronic version of what we were doing for several years a, a, a thing I called chat with the chief where I would go out on um, the community try to do it quarterly uh, no agenda and uh, you know 99 percent was uh, was not off the table we could talk about anything obviously there were, there were a few things but uh, that was that was very effective very popular um, you know to get out among the among the community you know, now we've got, uh, uh, we're amid COVID, um, limited on gatherings or whatnot. And, you know, I, I think your foresight into, uh, into podcasts and how to deliver information over social media is just outstanding. And it goes to my point, you know, I hire people a lot smarter than me and, uh, and uh, you're definitely one of those at this point. So appreciate it. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the, we'll build on the chat with the chief here. So one of the things we also do as a department is the Citizens Police Academy. And uh, with COVID, we haven't been able to run that. Uh, but usually twice a year, we run a Citizens Police Academy. It lasts eight weeks where uh, we get citizens who come in and they get really like a inside peek every week for three hours for eight weeks on what the department does. And that's, that's a huge hit. And I, I think we need to continue to do that as well as this. Absolutely. It's been a, a very, very uh, popular program with the citizens. We've had over 
20 graduating classes with, uh, you know, 400 graduates that are out there. Many of them are, um, you know, so impressed with the department and the officers that they volunteer. We have a very vo uh, robust volunteer uh, force that, uh, that saves us innumerable um, tasks and, and money uh, that we wouldn't be able to get to because of prioritization. And, uh, and so they are, uh, you know, they are a force multiplier for us. But again, you know, the one thing that I tell them, it's free, uh, but the one thing that I ask of them is that if they like what they see, they like what they hear, that they be ambassadors for the police department. So when they're out in the community and somebody is upset or they're bad-mouthing or they're asking questions why we do this, that, or the other thing, they can answer that question for them. And, uh, and that's all I ask. I invite critics. Um, I want people to come here who don't understand our function. You, you referenced it earlier. When people think about what a, you know, what a police officer does, it's the, it's the, the uh, man or woman driving around in the car uh, answering calls. Well, that's a big part of it, but there is much, much more to this police department than that. Yeah. Can you t talk a little bit about the volunteer program, how it uh, enhances our department, and if someone's interested, how we can go about getting them to volunteer? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, once again, they are, uh, um, they are a godsend for us in, in today's time of limited resources and, and finite, um, finite funds. Um, you know, the volunteer program, really, you can be as active as you want. We have a, a, a unit called the Volunteer Patrol Unit, VPU. Uh, they go out and uh, they handle uh, abandoned vehicle complaints. They unilaterally um, seek out and handle abandoned vehicles. They get them moved. They get them towed. Uh, and if they weren't doing that, I would, I would uh, you know, hasten to say that this place would look like a third world country because that would be so low on our priority list um, to get those junk vehicles off the street. Um, <clears throat> we have some, uh, a group of volunteers that handle our, um, our uh, you know, cold cases, if you will. So uh, a question that you're going to be asked if you, something happens, you get up in the morning and you find your car window broken out, you call the, the dispatch center and they're going to ask, do you have any suspects, witnesses, or evidence? And if you say no to that, then you don't need a police officer. All we can do is say, sorry, that happened, give you a report number, refer you to your insurance. Well, we are, you know, on pace right now in 2020 to hit 100,000 calls, and we can ill afford to have officers tied up on things that they can't help you with. And so you will be referred to a call taker which will get all the information you need, um, give you a report number, um, follow up with that later if any of those three questions change and you need to talk to an officer. Uh, but they do thousands of calls, which uh, ultimately save an officer going out there to do that. Uh, a couple years ago, we put uh, pen to paper and uh, figured that they saved the police department about $300,000 um, in the ballpark of uh, you know, in, in salary savings that we weren't sending officers on on things that are low priority. So, um, you know, we're always taking applications. You can, uh, you know, find us in our website, and uh, we encourage people. Uh, you know, that number ebbs and flows. Mo most people are retired. Uh, some people go down to Arizona in the winter, and, uh, you know, they do the snowbird thing and come back. So uh, yeah, absolutely, we'll take uh, take any and all takers. And then there's other projects that they get into as well that are you know, a little more specialized. 
What a great way for, for those who don't know quite what to do but want to kind of give back to the community to help out. Is uh, It's a good 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 method for that. Absolutely. The camaraderie is, uh, is wonderful. You know, the volunteer patrol unit, they go out in teams. And, uh, you know, they are partners for life. You, you see them, you know, when they're working, you see them when they're not working, and, uh, and they made some great friendships. Good, good. So let's pivot on that a little bit and talk about, uh, and, and so when we go forward with the rest of this podcast, you know, we're going to set the basics up, and that's going to be the foundation for us to really dig deeper into some of these areas. But, but let's give a, a good overview of the department, and let's start with what our mission is and kind of uh, – uh, what type of policing we do in the community and our, our strategy, you know, for the community. Yeah, absolutely. And our mission statement is clearly outlined. You'll find it throughout the police department in our in our um, um, annual reports uh, year in and year out. But basically we talked about where we want to improve the quality of life through customer service and problem-solving partnership with the community. And I think that partnership, um, we, have, we have been able to engage on many different levels to help with things. Uh, we uh, are partnered up with the Downtown Business Association with two officers full-time helping out with issues downtown. We have officers at uh, the Billings Clinic, which are helping with, uh, you know, with issues up there. I mean, when you start looking at those two, two specific areas, it, they're communities within a community. Uh, we have eight school resource officers, once again, community within a community that are helping with issues like that. So uh, th- those are examples of how we're partnering uh, with, uh, with the community. And there are m- many others, and we're, we're constantly searching for other, other opportunities. So in, in, in this uh, idea of, of community partnership policing and stuff, what are, what are some of the strategies that the department is using to uh, reduce crime and respond to? Well, it really rolls into how we are set up structurally to conduct business. Um, I describe the police department as a a four-legged stool. Um, One of those legs is the administration part. That's where you're going to find the chiefs, the command officers, uh, and mid-level command. And essentially what that um, leg is assigned or is uh, tasked to do is to run the day-to-day business of the police department. And that's exactly what it is. It's a business. We have personnel. We have budgets. We have policies. We have procedures. We have uh, human resource issues. We have our out, outward-facing uh, media and contact. And so that's what the business end of things is. Uh, another leg would be what I call our reactive uh, side of the house, and that's primarily our patrol officers. Uh, so there's 80, 85 that um, patrol the streets 24-7, 365. Um, they essentially answer those 911 calls on your calls for service. Uh, anytime you pick up the phone, um, if it's one of those calls that, that uh, has a suspect witness or evidence or is in progress, you're going to get probably two officers on your call. Uh, the thing there is that uh, when I say reactive, that means that it's already happened and we're reacting to something. And we're not effective that way when we're just running from call to call to call. And so we wanna be able to reduce that and have our officers do proactive. That is where we are most effective. Uh, On the proactive side of things, we have our um, uh, various task forces and specialized units. And this is where we really make uh, a difference in driving down crime. So we have officers assigned to a multitude of federal uh, joint 
state, federal, local task forces. So the DEA, the ATF, the Marshal Service, um, our own crime unit, which is, or our drug unit, which is uh, responsible primarily for in drug enforcement in eastern Montana. Um, they have a very high, uh, very high mission statement, which is to disrupt and dismantle drug traffic organizations. And we're talking mid-level and higher. Uh, they do outstanding work, and there's unfortunately plenty of work to be, to be had. Uh, Internet crimes against children, uh, computer forensics analysis, our domestic violence. And so all of these are examples of where we have resources um, deployed to get in the middle of stuff and disrupt it, intervene, stop it before it happens. Uh, and that's where we make a difference. In 2018, 2019, we, sh we had a prime example of that. We created what was called a street crimes unit because what we were finding is that the, um, the drug problems that we had were really too low for the standard that the, the drug unit is required to operate at and uh, that our property crimes were, some of them were getting missed by detectives because they were working on homicides, robberies, and rapes. So there was a significant number of, of crimes, <coughs> stolen vehicles, burglary, low-level um, low drug activity, um, assaults that weren't getting any attention other than officers following up. So this unit was carved out of three shifts and detectives and tasked with dealing with that. And in two years, they drove those numbers down significantly. And that's what we can do when we proactively staff different things. Again, we had to carve people out of other areas to do that. So it gets into, you know, what does a citizen or what do the citizens want us to do? Uh, so that's proactive. Uh, you know, the other side would be, um, you know, our um, administrative side or our training in PR. And so, you know, obviously we need to have an outward-facing uh, presentation of the department. This is part of it. Training, policies, procedures, a lot of stuff, a lot of our volunteer activity, neighborhood watches, community things like that. So when you put those four legs together, um, you basically have, have what our department looks like. And ultimately what we want to get to, and this was a lot of the talk pre-COVID, is to grow the department in resources so we could adequately staff our proactive uh, and because we know that we can make a difference and we had a we had a plan and the plan was this is to is to address violent crime so we were going to add additional people to those proactive units second we were going to address the perception of uh, of criminal uh, activity uh, and quality of life issues in the downtown area again bolster the community policing aspect with additional foot officers, additional bike officers, additional officers dedicated to the downtown area specifically, not getting called away to other stuff. Third was traffic enforcement. Bolster our, our traffic unit. Uh, I think everybody in Billings would agree, you know, traffic's an issue. People uh, seem to think our lights and signs are just advisory and off they go. And then fourth, because we know that we have identified um, substance abuse and mental illness uh, co-occurring um, is a major driver of everything that we do. Let's make an investment in that. And so we've been heavily vested in what's called Yellowstone Substance Abuse Connect, 
dabbling a little bit in, in uh, a continuum of care stuff to try to, to get involved on the front end, prevention, treatment, version, before they go out and commit a crime and we got to deal with it on the reactive or proactive side. I think that's huge, Chief, because, um, you know, w with, with everything going on currently, you know, law enforcement has often been used as the first-line approach when we should be a last-line defense. And, uh, you know, the, the best way that I can describe it to people at times is, is what you're seeing is, is you're seeing the symptoms and the effects of something else going on. And, and if, we wanna, if we want a different flavor of a food, we've got to change the recipe. Right, right. And I, uh, you're much more eloquent than I. And, you know, I just call law enforcement the Swiss Army knife of, of everything, uh, all the social ills that we're seeing. Um, nobody in law enforcement went to school um, to handle mental illness, to handle homelessness, to handle co-occurring addiction issues, to handle a, uh, you know, a, a kindergartner who won't you won't come out of the door or come out of their bedroom and go to school yet these are the calls that you're sending uniform officers on we we are by design we enforce the law um, but this is what this is what we get pushed into more and more and more so we're trying to you know come up with some solutions to um, you know to, to help alleviate some of that so we can get back to 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 uh, combating the, the true criminal activity that is affecting the livability uh, and the economic development of buildings. And that's, that's where we need to be. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things for the listeners is these are extremely complicated community issues with lots of, of things behind them and, and there's no simple solution. Uh, and that's kind of one of the things with this podcast. You know, we want to bring on guests, addiction specialists, other members of the community and have some have some tough conversations and maybe crack open some uh, some resources or some solutions for some of these issues. Let's uh, let's pivot just a little bit and switch to uh, let's talk about our budget and how that uh, goes into reaching our goals. Yeah, absolutely. So our budget going into this year was uh, 27 million and some change. Um, you know, when you uh, obviously uh, um, or hopefully that your listeners have been uh, been hearing something or paying attention to a, a public safety levy discussion that has been taking place with a, uh, a, a vote coming up on uh, Tuesday the 15th. Uh, but when you start looking at public safety in general, and let's just go police and fire. And there are several other several other entities that fall under public safety. But police and fire, um, we use 100 uh, percent of two previous safety levies and 50% of the city's general fund to operate. Now that's a level that the, that the citizens want. I mean, you ultimately decide what level of safety it is and, that, and that's the, um, the level that we're at. But that's a chunk of money. And um, you know, the, uh, the lion's share of both police and fire budget, that 27 million is in people. We don't sell products, we provide a service. And so we hire and I'm not going to apologize for our process, and Brandon, you're, you are the one that runs it. I do not apologize to anybody for the, um, the, the, the strict, um, the very difficult, the very high standards that we and, and through you have set in our hiring process. Because when we get an A-plus product in the front end, we get an A-plus product out the back end, and that's all that I care about is that the very best comes out uh, and is serving the citizens. Um, you know, so of that, 
uh, 27,000,000, 73%, almost 80, and then going into, you know, this year is a little bit more, obviously, but 80% of that is people. And so when you start running into budgetary issues, you know, what are you going to cut? Because, uh, you know, we're, we're over budget. Um, you know, I can, I don't have to buy a car here. I don't have to buy a car there. We'll back off on the pencils and the uniforms. But at the end of the day, the only way to make a significant cut is to get into people. And that's what we're trying to avoid because when we do that, we have to start pulling people back from those proactive um, positions because the most important thing is to answer the calls for service. And that is what we are trying to avoid doing uh, through this safety levy. So building on that, that service and, and that officer, that human component that has to respond to this, uh, in 2019, I'm trying to find it here real quick. Uh, you recall how many calls we responded to? Yeah, just under 95,000 uh, calls for service. And, and understand that a call for service for us is two things. One, when the citizen uh, picks up a telephone and calls or comes into the, into the station or whatnot. Or two, if an officer self-initiates, and this is what we what we want, and we want the officer being out there self-initiating. So the combination of the two are about 95,000. We're on pace this year, uh, as I indicated, for uh, uh, for about 100,000. So in comparison and contrast with that, when we're talking about the city growing, um, you know, per population-wise since 2010, the census really hasn't grown terribly much, but our calls for service in 2010 were a little over, little over 61,000, and, and now in 2019, we're on almost 95,000. So that's a 50% increase in, in call load volume and activity for, for us with a... Um, you know, increase in law enforcement staffs and not commensurate or, or measurable to that increase. Absolutely. It, um, and, and that's one of the things that we point out. And, and again, it's a little bit of statistical um, things on our part on, on changing what we look at. But, uh, you know, as you indicate, we, we've had a slow and steady increase in population. Um, the thing that is more uh, drastic is the uh, square mileage that we are responsible for. 44 square miles for the city of Billings. Uh, we are responsible for, uh, or we can go out five miles outside of the city limits to take enforcement action, and we do that in order to support the sheriff's office, who is uh, is stretched equally thin and out on the flanks of the of the city. So, when I started, um, you know, you you didn't go you didn't go out to Shiloh, and you didn't go past uh, the Metra. There were bits and pieces in the heights out there that, that were in the city limits. Uh, anything east of Main Street was out. You know, now we are going, uh, you know, up to the Roundup Road on the north end. You're down to Briarwood, uh, and you're out as far uh, and past Ironwood and Phipps Park out there. And so you have a lot of area to cover. Uh, you have a lot of uh, population density in some of those areas. And as you say, over the years, we really haven't had the commensurate resources to keep up with, with that. Uh, and then, of course, when you add more people, it's just logical that more things are going to happen, and so you get more calls. Uh, I'm so proud of the department uh, of being able to keep a handle on these things. Uh, anecdotally, and this was a month or so ago, we had um, two shootings at the same time. One was an officer involved of another agency and three crime scenes. And we had every on-duty officer tied up 
uh, on those three things plus the regular day-to-day business. We had every available commander who was uh, was working that day to include me out on the street handling stuff. And we called the night shift in two and a half or hours early. That is an absolute unacceptable uh, situation when you don't have the resources to handle those. Now that's an anomaly when you get that, but it happened. And I saw the same thing happen with the fire department twice this month, multiple calls at the same time. And then just last week with their with all the fires burning, uh, talking to Chief Rash, he had every employee in the fire department had been called back in to handle all the stuff that was going on in town and handle all their the responsibilities. And this is the crux of what we talk about uh, on our funding. Unfortunately, it's property tax. And people, uh, you and I included, um, have had a gut full of property tax. But there is no viable uh, solution at this point other than to ask the voters to help us. Um, and you're going to decide what it is that you want. We cannot afford to go backwards, and that's our that's been the cry as we as we move forward in this. Uh, we understand COVID's caused some financial issues. The landscape's very murky um, on what it is we want to go. Um, we had plans to grow the department, but the decision by the policymakers is let's plug this four and a half five million dollars hole that we have in our budget, um, which I just did a quantum leap to get to. Um, <laughs> uh, and and then uh, and then uh, you know we'll, we can reassess and go from there. So, uh, yeah, bigger bigger area, um, a few more people, and then uh, of course we d- what I see and even my predecessors I remember very 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 vividly um, you know ten fifteen years ago I was more than that so fifteen plus years ago a chief that came from another department said that. He's noticed the citizens of Billings have a high propensity to call the police on stuff. And so when you combine all those things, 110,000 calls or 100,000 calls for service. Let's scratch into some officer numbers a little bit to kind of highlight kind of what we're talking about of, of getting to that breaking limit where you don't have any more resources. I think that the average citizen would be shocked to find that our minimum staffing on a shift is nine officers in a day uh, during, during the shift. Uh, can you kind of describe our shift staffing standards and the, the officers who are available to respond to these calls? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I started in 1981, we had nine beats, and obviously the city is nowhere near the size that it is right now. Um, and moving into uh, a, a few years ago, we still had nine beats. And so they became very big, uh, very elongated, and dense with population. We really did not have a structural change. Uh, we've since made uh, made some changes there to help us out, um, you know, geographically. So we have some mutual coverage. It's, it's been a good thing. Um, however, you know, in essence, you basically still have those nine beat areas. They're just subdivided up and, and moved around a little bit. The number nine comes from union union contract uh, and negotiations, which basically says we're not going to go to work with any less than ma- uh, a, an officer per beat. And so on a bad, bad day, if we have sick schools, right now we have COVID, sometimes we lose officers for you know a minimum of 48 hours while they're waiting, uh, waiting for rapid testing. Um, you know, we could have a, a city of 110,044 square miles being covered by nine officers. 
Um, most of our calls require two, so we go to four calls and we're out of cops. And so that's an untenable situation. Now, that doesn't happen a lot because we, you know, have extra people. You might see 10, 10, 11, 12. Um, and then if the shifts overlap based on the way we're scheduled, you're going to have double. So if two shifts or minimum staffing, you're going to have 18 working for a period of time. Uh, this is where what we don't want to do. I don't want to run minimum staffing. I want to be able to, to double up beats. I want to be able to carve a couple officers out to address a problem area, maybe traffic, maybe a drug house or something, give us flexibility rather than just field nine and then try to answer calls. We get nothing done and provide no customer service that way. And when you receive like... Um feedback from the public what what did what do you usually hear from the public mostly on what they see as a, a complaint in the community well interesting question Brandon and I and uh, we go to a lot of neighborhood task force and, and talk to them present statistics in their particular area uh, unequivocally the uh, the quality of life issues are the number one complaint uh, that I get and the ones that make my phone ring so we're talking about uh, the, the transient, uh, the transient activity primarily downtown, but now it's proliferating to the other parts of town. Uh, traffic, a drug house, and then maybe a party house. Uh, the other thing that I hear a lot, uh, and it just goes to the quality of life, is um, you know the the window that gets broken out, the mailbox that gets run over, the the senseless graffiti that takes place. Um, you know, it's unfortunate we had a homicide down the street. They were a lovely couple, but somebody parked in front of my, my driveway. So the things that really matter to people that really affect them day in and day out are those quality of life type things that really affect, you know, what am I looking at when I open my, you know, my window, you know, is my windshield broken out, things like that. We got a pretty good handle on the big stuff that takes place. We had, you know, I think 11 plus homicides or, you know, serious crimes going back to January of this year. And, and we have either arrests or warrants for people for stuff. So we do a good job with, uh, with that. <clears throat> but people do, uh, do take notice to the things that affect their quality of life or perception uh, and perception of, of safety. And that's huge. Right. And one of the things that I like to point out to people when I'm talking to them, when they, they read a lot of these headlines of the violent crime being on the rise, and it absolutely is a problem, it absolutely is a factor in the community. Um, but what we in law enforcement see is a lot of these crimes are with known associates, drug-related, that stuff. And so we rarely see, it does happen, where you have a randomized, targeted victim of violent crimes or felonious crimes. Uh, where there's some type of circumstance that lands these, these people in there. Um, I like to talk to, uh, tell people in, in the drug world, even though we have a really, really bad drug problem, we, you can't, an average citizen just can't drive down to a neighborhood or anywhere in Billings and pull up to a street corner and, and buy drugs from somebody. We don't have that level, and, and, and law enforcement has driven that type of activity underground and kind of kept a cap on it even though it's leaking leaking out here and there yeah absolutely i mean you don't you don't see the drive-by shootings you don't see the open-air drug markets um you don't see the overt uh prostitution uh, you know all of things uh, many 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 years ago there were there were smatterings of that uh, here and so that just speaks volumes on uh you know the type of work where our focus is and and what's uh, going on you know the 
the criminal element, they got to vote too on how things end up. So they're creative and, and they, uh, um, you know, are always trying to find ways to circumvent and, and you know, that's a, that's a challenge as well. Uh, and, but, uh, you know, again, when you start looking at the things that, uh, that we've accomplished, uh, you know, it, it, it's a safe city, it really is, despite some of the headlines. Uh, and as you indicate, when you, you know, we have our homicides, they know each other. It's a drug deal gone bad or something, um, a, a ripoff or whatever the case may be. It's just not random. So while we're on the topic of, of violent crime, let's kind of talk about uh, the, the rise because the rest of the nation, if you look at like uh, FBI national statistics, the nationwide, there's a decrease in violent crime. But for the last uh, 10 or more years, uh, Billings has been on the rise for violent crime. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the things that we, we jumped on right away, um, you know, pre-COVID, pre-safety levy discussions is that we, we recognize this and that was um, our focus in uh, 2018 with the creation of street crimes and then uh, we, we really were pulled together by uh, the U.S. Attorney Kurt Almey in what's called Project Safe Neighborhood. Uh, and essentially, um, you know, he brought everybody to the table, um, made us come to the table and said, you're going to share information and we're going to work as a team and we're going to get after the worst of the worst. Good for him. I mean, what a nice job he did. We continue to meet, um, you know, they meet weekly, they exchange information, there's no silos. And they took, um, they took felons in possession, they took the worst of the worst, uh, robbers, burglars, uh, drug dealers, high-level warrants, and really just eradicated that really top 10% of the worst of the worst in Billings in a couple of years. And frankly, they were looking for work to do after that. And, and the other thing is, is that we were able to get them into the federal system, uh, which definitely, um, you know, carries much more of a, of a penalty uh, and leaves more of a mark than getting them into the state system. But everybody at the table there made a difference. If you look at our annual report, I mean, you can see where we were flattening um, those numbers, and this is, you know, this is how uh, how I uh, report this out. Definitely on property crime, we pushed it down. One thing happened at the legislature, uh, and it was a definition change in our partner family member assault. Uh, what we have found, as did other people in the state, is that a great number of the domestic abuse or domestic assaults involve some sort of strangulation. And so the legislature created a standalone charge called strangulation. And in our statistics, that counts as a aggravated assault, which is what we report to the FBI under their uh, reporting requirements. And so when you look at, there's a significant jump in 18 and 19. Uh, so we go in 17, we had 540. Ag um, aggravated assaults and then it goes to 663 and then 659. If you back out the strangulation charges in, in 18 and 19, uh, we would have flattened that number in violent crime and that's exactly where we wanted to be. So that's kind of a, uh, you know, a caveat that I have to point out to people. I mean, it's the thing, the strangulation is horrendous. The damage it does is catastrophic, um, you know, potentially fatal. So rightfully so, um, but it gets, it gets um, logged in there with shootings and stabbings and all that as well. So a little bit of explanation is required when we talk about that. So even with that change in uh, the legislation and how we're charging certain cases, 
you know, if you look at even the numbers back in 2006, uh, there was, you know, 252 violent crimes reported, but then you go back to, you know, 2017 prior to the change in the law and there was 540. Uh, so even in that, uh, you know, in that 10, 11 year period, we've, we've doubled in numbers for violent crimes. Absolutely. And, and I think uh, what I've reported year in and year out is that um, we saw a steady increase, a high likelihood that a weapon was going to be used uh, more often. And that just, uh, that just increased. So the days of a, of a fist fight or something gave way to knives, now gave way to, to firearms. And then you have, you know, people that really have no uh, conscience about using firearms. And, uh, you know, that that's becomes problematic, and that's what we were seeing. Let's, um, let's pivot off of the violent crimes a little bit because we can do another one and dig real deep into that one. But let's talk some property crimes and trends in the community. Absolutely. Well, we were... We are required to report to the FBI um, thefts, burglaries, motor vehicle thefts, and arson. Uh, arson is an odd one, but I think because of the potential for significant property loss, they want to know that. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is where we have people stealing, uh, committing vandalisms, committing burglaries. Uh, you know that we had um, um, a significant problem with stolen vehicles the last couple of years. Um, and, um, you know, we, again, our answer to that was to create this special unit to address that specifically. And when you look at our statistics in 18 and 19 and refer them to, to 2017, we drove those numbers down because we were able to, uh, you know, to provide direct uh, attention to that problem area. Uh, so we went from 6,700 down to uh, 5,800 in a couple of years. Still high numbers. You know, when you start talking about a, you know, a, a couple hundred people um, a year are going to be victims in billings of, of property crime, that's unacceptable. And it goes back to the livability of billings. We want people to come here. We want our children to come back and live here. We want businesses to move in here. Um, and they will not do that. And my boss has always said, if A, there's a problem with public safety perception, and B, there's a perception problem with education, whether you got a, a good system or not. Those are absolutely two critical infrastructures in order to attract people back here. Um, and so we're working very hard on the public safety side of things. And when we look at property crimes from the police department, the, the two kind of barometer ones that are the big ones for us are, you know, motor vehicle theft and, and burglaries. Um, I'm going to shoot out a couple numbers here. You know, in 2016, we hit a high for motor vehicle thefts at 820 in a year. Uh, and then in, in our high for burglaries was in 2017 at 790. And, f and for the listeners, uh, you know, those numbers may not seem terribly high, but you're talking at 820, that's over two motor vehicles stolen per day in, in the city of Billings. Uh, and, and that trend of those high numbers was what uh, resulted in us developing that street crimes unit. So if you want to talk about the, uh, what we saw specifically from 2017, both numbers for motor vehicle theft and burglary has started to drop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a concerted effort. This was a focus to drive drive these areas down, the property crimes specifically. The one thing people need to understand about the stolen vehicles is, um, you know, we had our fair share where keys were left in the car or whatnot, but 
Uh, these staves are getting pretty uh, sophisticated, and they can pop locks and get get in uh, get in um, ignitions pretty readily. So not all of them were, uh, you know, cars running, warming up, or or had keys in it. But invariably, they're not just stealing a car to drive around in it. They're stealing a car, and then they're committing additional crimes. And then it, and then uh, I think your listeners will know that. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, we may get onto a stolen vehicle not knowing what, what other crimes they committed, and then they end up running from us, so they end up in a chase, and they end up crashing, destroying other people's property on top of the car. And so this one single event just compounds itself in victimizing the public and causing problems, uh, you know, for the police department. So, again, I don't want to react to a stolen car. I want to be proactive and get after the people that are doing it and make it uh, uncomfortable for them to operate. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why you saw those numbers drop. You know, I think one of the things when, when law enforcement and talks to the community and, and one of the things we're always beating the drum with is the drug nexus crimes, drug nexus crimes. And we don't uh, particularly track all of the property crimes and other crimes that have drug nexus, but Here's where it comes from, and, and, and I want the listeners to know, is that um, we'll recover a stolen vehicle. Uh, the victim isn't a meth addict. They're not a drug user. And when we you know, search the vehicle to recover it, we find drugs, drug paraphernalia, weapons, firearms, those types of things. Uh, we catch burglars in progress, and they have drugs, mostly methamphetamine, uh, on them or paraphernalia in, in their system. Uh, our homicides, our robberies are oftentimes motivated by drugs or uh, drugs on board with those involved. Uh, and and it, that drug-seeking behavior of stealing things for monetary value uh, is that direct correlation. Yeah, I absolutely have to, uh, you know, have to, f- to fund that habit. And, you know, right now, uh, even the methamphetamine business is uh, being affected by COVID. Um, it's, it's tough to get across the border. Travel is, uh, is limited. Most of our uh, methamphetamine comes from a uh, direct source from Mexico. Uh, so now you've got a, uh, you know, very high price, uh, not very much around supply and demand. And so you have some people that are, are pretty desperate for, uh, for money or the product, and they do some stupid things. And, and unfortunately, that's what the citizens have to deal with, and as is us. All right, so now that, now that we're talking uh, about some of the, the drug offenses and stuff, let's look at some of the, the numbers and drug offenses that we see through the, the community and the trends with those. Yeah, same uh, same situation. You know, all of these things are correlated. The property crimes are violent crimes, and 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 the drug activity. And so it just it makes perfect sense that when uh, you know our street crimes unit, our drug unit, and Project Na- Safe Neighborhood were all focused on on these type of activities that it drove the numbers down. You know, once again, it's 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 uh, direct statistical empirical evidence that shows. This is where we need to have our resources at, is on these proactive sides. However, we still need to be able to to patrol the neighborhoods and answer calls for service, and we have a finite number of resources to do that. A finite number of resources to do that. So, um, uh, you know, these are the things that that are important to us. Our drug unit, uh, we are part of a multi-state drug task force called Rocky Mountain HIDA. HIDA stands for High Intensity Drug Traffic Area. 
Uh, Brandon, you ran that that outfit uh, wonderfully for several years before you promoted yourself out of the fun jobs. <laughs> uh, to your listeners, he keeps uh, hitting me up all the time about wanting to go over there and be back in charge. So we'll we'll keep working on that. Um, but again, if you remember, their tasking is disrupt, dismantle drug traffic organizations. Uh, two years in a row, um, task force of the year uh, for their productivity and, act, and activity. And we are talking about a four-state um, drug task force of uh, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah. So uh, outstanding work by, uh, by our officers and our partners in this particular area. Uh, but... Unfortunately, there's no shortage of work there. We know, uh, you know, methamphetamine continues to come in, and you know, we're still dealing with the, with the heroin, the cocaine, and and now we, uh, you know, now we have the more marijuana issues to talk about and deal with, um, you know, coming up at the legislature. So, uh, no shortage of work, unfortunately, and that drives the other things that that we see in the community. Yeah, so I think for the listeners, the, the stats in 2019, there was uh, 657 drug possession charges, uh, 44 possession with intent to sell, uh, and then uh, 39 sale dangerous drugs. Our task force uh, has statistics that add on to that as well. But just to kind of put this into perspective, because uh, this all kind of inter- interlinks with itself, but back again, you have more than more than two drug offenses being being caught by law enforcement every day, and we have this dark figure in law enforcement where we don't if we don't get and aren't involved with it, we don't know what it is. So this is just stuff that we're involved in, and and the actual problem in the community is a little bit bigger. So let's kind of loop back around and talk about this uh, this Connect program, and then some of the resources with the DBA outsor- or outreach resource officer and substance abuse how. Uh, this correlation of this drug problem, property crimes, violent crimes, and drug treatment kind of fit into play? Well, we know what's causing the problem, and that would be the, uh, <clears throat> the drugs, the alcohol, um, and, and driving, driving the poor behavior. Um, you know, some of those have over- overarching mental illness issues. So if we know what the problem is, then it would make sense that we try to address it on the front end. This is absolutely um, landmark stuff for law enforcement. The um, ONDCP, Office of uh, National Drug Policy, which oversees um, all of the HIDA and the enforcement money, so that's our four-state task force, uh, agreed to give... um, Billings, because we're the fiduciary for um, Eastern Montana Haida, money to address the uh, the the prevention and and uh, treatment issue on the front end. This is absolutely unparalleled because ONDCP money is historically for enforcement. So they so liked the program that was being put forth by our community partners, mainly on the social side. So you got Rimrock Foundation, the Crisis Center, all the the providers, the uh, housing, um, all those things, uh, they so much were impressed with that that they granted us money to work on the front end. Again, that's not what police officers do. We don't look for affordable housing, clean and sober housing. We We don't do that. But here we are on the front end of that, helping with that product. So if we can get some traction, and we have, uh, we're moving forward with, with things, and uh, citizens should start seeing some 
um, you know, visible aspects of what we got going and make a difference on the front end, then hopefully we can make a difference on the front end and see some of these numbers drop off. Uh, the downtown side of things, we have, again, our two officers uh, that, that are dedicated to the downtown businesses and related area. Uh, they are partnered up with what we call a resource outreach coordinator, a ROC, uh, basically a mental health worker, a counselor, and uh, the three of them uh, are on patrol downtown, and when they encounter our, uh, our serial inebriants, the, the transient, the homeless that may be intoxicated, um, mentally ill or having, having troubles, that we can immediately engage with a mental health worker and get them the resources that they need. Um, and this is, uh, you know, one of the things that's really, really being pushed nation, nationwide when you hear about uh, police reform is that to get that mental health out among the community and we've been doing it this is the third rock that we've had so i mean this is nothing new to us and and very pleased to, to support that program so i think one of the other things that got published in 2019 so we uh worked with the vista project and had some some uh, uh people with the, the core there do some research into the drug use in the community and they published a report that kind of helps give us an idea and a peek into what's going on with the drug problem in the community yeah, absolutely. Same thing, grant-funded money, um, and VISTA helps us out with that. So really what we were looking for is, is what were some of the, the early experiences that would lead these people uh, you know, to get into uh, criminal activity and into their drug world. So what, w what was some of the commonalities? And, and you're finding things like uh, the first time I had a contact with law enforcement was when you know, my dad got arrested for PFMA, um, or I had a DUI, and so you're, you, we were able to track back some of the some of the things that would push people into using, um, you know, methamphetamine specifically or other drugs, and then back up on that to see if we can intervene at at first time. So the first time somebody has is arrested for PFMA and and potentially loses their family let's intervene right there before they go south so those are the things that the vistas were looking at trying to trying to uh, uh, tie things together so again on the front end that's not a law enforcement function uh, but but here we are working on it uh, with our partners and can you speak a little bit so we still have the vista project working with us right now on a new project are you able to chat about that or what we're what we're moving forward with well it's uh yeah we still have vistas working and they are they've just kind of uh um you know adjusted their approach on what they're looking at for project safe neighborhood numbers we're trying to look at at uh you know commonalities we're also trying to look at um, how many of these individuals that um, commit violent crimes are on probation or on per, uh, parole um, what their status was when did they get released uh, because we're having a significant issue with um, the, the prison is uh, paroling a lot of a lot of uh, their inmates early and lots of them and Billings gets a ton of them mainly because we have the resources but when we are you know, 100 plus percent more um, parolees coming to Billings than any other city in town or in the state, you know, you have to think that the resources are scant, uh, they can't get a job, they can't find a place to live, they couch surf for a while and eventually they reoffend. 
and then we have to deal with them again. And this is what we're, we're trying to work on the front end to make sure that those resources are there so they don't reoffend. They can get housing, they can get a job, they, can, uh, they have their counseling. And then we're trying to work with Department of Corrections to say, you know, look, there's other cities here in Montana that, you know, can take them. Um, and that's a whole other podcast on, you know, how that discussion goes. But uh, to say that there is a, uh, you know, an in, uh, inordinate number uh, and disparate number that are coming here versus other places is totally accurate. And, and this is exactly the conversations that I think that we got to be having is, is it's not just the response and the calls for service we're looking at. We've got to get into these community issues and look at, uh, you know, that recipe I was talking to, what gets us to here. And then make sure that that recidivism rate throughout the, the, the justice system as a whole, it has to work as a has to work together. It can't just just be us. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, we uh, sometimes it's a benefit, sometimes it's a curse. But for some reason, uh, the Billings Police Department seems to be viewed as the only law enforcement agency in Yellowstone County, and we are not. Um, I think mean, there's hundreds of other officers uh, represented by other agencies here. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody's working very hard and all have their same issues, uh, you know, with financing and, and things of that sort. So, um, you know, please, please be mindful that we're just not the only ones here, that there, there are other people. Um, Sheriff Linder, uh, we have a great relationship with the Sheriff's Office. Um, you know, completely different operations, a little bit different. They're more rural-oriented, so they have their, you know, their resident deputies and things like that. Um, our big, um, our big uh, collaboration, if you will, would be the jail, um, compounded by you know some issues down there they've had uh, during constructions and, and uh, structural issues, and now COVID really limits our ability to take people down there. Um, and you know you hear it's frustrating for officers, it's frustrating for the public. Um, and you know the one thing I'll say, yeah, you know there, you know there's there's things that, that we'd like to see better. It's really not a jail problem, it's a crime problem. If we can get, get the criminal activity uh, tamped down, then I'm not gonna have a space problem down there. Um, and so these are all things that we work for on the, again, you know, as, as we talked about, it's a 10,000 foot view. To the officer on the street that can't get somebody in the jail, they're frustrated. To the citizen who just saw an officer take somebody out of their house who broke into it, get released, you know, after being pictured and printed with a notice to appear, that's frustrating. And those people need to be in jail. But again, it's much, much bigger on, um, you know, how we solve that problem. Um, you know, just throwing people in jail is not the answer um, uh, across the board. And um, so, again, more discussion on that point, but uh, things that we deal with every day. Absolutely. Because that incarceration or being able to put people in jail is an excellent law enforcement tool. Uh, to keep the crime rates low and uh, obviously there's those in the community who won't stop committing crimes until they're be behind bars and get uh, get proper uh, recourse to the criminal justice system yeah absolutely and I, I think that again you know the criminal elements not stupid and they understand that uh, because of current situations that um, you know accountability is pretty lax right now and so they it's not uncommon for officers to arrest a shoplifter two and three times in a day that's frustrating um, you know, you and I can tell the citizens that uh, if I put somebody in jail, they're not going to bother you anymore. Um, and that's an easy answer. Uh, you're talking, you know, now 
in cooperation with with Sheriff Lenders and his staff. I mean, he's got quarantined areas. He's got, you know, some construction issues. And um, as much as I'd like to take every violator and and clean this place up, that's not realistic. And so we need to work work with our partners in that. And they've been great. I mean, people that need to go in there go in. And then, uh, you know, so we get some in and we don't. So it's just one of those things. But, uh, you know, I, I value our partnership, and, and it's a great operation they got going over there. All right, let's uh, take a minute to pivot with uh, – let's move into some traffic offenses, starting with some, some DUIs and talk about how, the, you know, that DUI uh, driving and the impact with property damage and accidents and, and personal injury kind of impact the community. Well, we've always had problems with the uh, DUI. Um, 2019, we had a little bit of spike again. I'm not exactly sure why that was. Um, we had been driving stuff down. Uh, I think a little bit was it goes to our staffing levels. At one point in time uh, in, uh, that I had to basically pull our traffic officers and assign them to a shift. So we did not have anybody that was doing sole traffic investigation. <clears throat> and that, you know, that's what happens when we start start losing staffing for whatever reason. So in order to do the proactive stuff, we got to have those people that are that are undedicated to to the radio. And so I think that that was, uh, you know, in combination with people who just, uh, you know, insist on drinking and driving, we saw those numbers go up. Um, you know, certainly it's one of our priorities. We have a, uh, you know, a very, very high um, emphasis on, on you know, DUI enforcement. We know massive traffic damage, massive uh, you know, numbers of, of personal injuries and deaths, and we know it's avoidable. And, uh, and so that's why we put a high priority on that. So we, uh, you know, we'll keep that pressure up. We'll, we'll also uh, continue our education, you know, trying to uh, you know, get people to get a, get a designated driver. I mean, there's no excuse today's day and age. You got the Ubers, you got your friends, and um, you know, on <clears throat> New Year's Eve or some of those uh, festive eves, you even got tow trucks that'll take your, you and your car home. Uh, so there's no excuse, any way, shape, or form, uh, to get behind the wheel when you're when you're intoxicated or even impaired in any way. And and for those listeners, in uh, we had a little over 650 DUIs uh, arrested by our department in 2019, and yeah, again, that number approaches to approximately almost two two a day. Um, and uh, so the activity there, it's real. Um, you did mention the uh, step program. Uh, can you kind of talk about how they function and how they go about uh, targeting enforcement? Yeah, Brandon, and uh, you're well aware we like our acronym. So STEP stands for Selective Traffic Enforcement Program. Um, we have a uh, group of officers, four right now, that are uh, specialized in traffic enforcement. Uh, they, uh, you know, randomly patrol uh, high violation, high acti- uh, accident areas, uh, they also go to areas that I receive complaints on. Uh, they will go there and, and uh, you know, uh, run radar, run traffics, uh, do checks or whatnot, and, uh, you know, pretty much tamp down a problem and then move on to the next. And I liken them to um, a game of whack-a-mole uh, where they will go and get traffic under control and slow down um, in a neighborhood or in a school zone and then move on to the next and then then the problem creeps up again. So uh, again, it's just a matter of resources. The one thing that we did, which is very unique, 
with a couple of our traffic officers, we partnered them with drug dogs. Uh, and these dogs specifically, uh, they're not patrol dogs, so they don't, uh, uh, they don't track, they don't bite, uh, they're not aggressive. They simply have a nose, uh, and they are detecting drugs. And the reason why we partnered these two up is because we were finding a great number of our traffic stops involved, uh, you know, drugs being present or drugs being involved. And so rather than call a canine officer over to help a step officer, we just partnered the two assets together, and it's been very, very effective. Excellent. So um, I think we could do a whole nother one on traffic accidents and stuff. Uh, we've been we've been going for a little over an hour now, and I think I want to cover just a few more things. Um, and so let's talk about some of the data that the police department tracks in terms of uh, uh, law enforcement tickets issued, uh, citations issued, as well as some arrest data that we that we track. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are things that um, we're not required to. Um, to present to the public, uh, we are uh, the only thing that we are required to report to the state would be our uh, uh, the ethnicity of our traffic stops. But I think it's important for our public to know um, that you know that our officers are uh, you know we we target behavior. We don't target uh, race or gender or sex or anything like that. Uh, it is behavior. Uh, and unequivocally, when you look at our numbers over the years, <coughs> the people that have most interaction with the police department are male whites. Um, they get arrested a uh, significant number uh, of times more, citations, the same thing. Um, Native Americans, uh, what we find, uh, although uh, they are you know, significantly fewer arrests uh, than, the, uh, um, than the whites, they have more charges per person. So you will have somebody that has, <coughs> that has maybe five or six separate warrants, and so you have one arrest with five charges. Uh, so I think when we did our statistical analysis, um, you know, you were looking at a, uh, the whites had maybe two, and uh, and the natives had had four, and so what what it looks like is that we, although it's a lower number of arrests, we have a disparate number based on population and that's that's not the the uh, the case at all so again just some interesting statistics but across the board and it makes perfect sense um, you know given the demographics of Billings that the most people that we run into and do stuff with are uh, whites uh, both male and female <coughs> so some of the other numbers that we track are Obviously, the, the arrest, we break those down uh, by race and, and gender, uh, but then we also track uh, use of force statistics. And as a department, um, we, we look at these numbers to, you know, one, not only track the stuff, but to look and see if there's any uh, propensity for bias in the department. Uh, and, and to do that, we have to kind of look a little deeper than those numbers beyond uh, per capita. Uh, and like you alluded to before, we look at behaviors. And so some of the things we've done is we've compared the numbers of the arrests by race to the um, uh, use of force reports that we have per race. Uh, and, and those numbers are I identical across the board. The, the use of force is proportional to the arrest rate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 59% um, of the, uh, the whites that we arrested uh, 
So 59% was some sort of use of force and 27% for, for native. So again, as you say, it's proportionate uh, to, to what it is. And use of force is, is a wide uh, spectrum of stuff uh, that, we, uh, uh, that we track. Uh, you know, the other thing that we, um, <coughs> that we track too is the perceived mental condition. Uh, of the people that we are arresting, and a uh, you know obviously a high number, um, they're over 30 percent. The perception of the officers at the time of arrest was that the individual was under the influence of uh, a drug or no narcotic, um, followed very closely by alcohol, uh, and uh, most of them are very angry about stuff. And so when you have a combination of those one two or three things then you know we end up with a with a problem and officers having to use some sort of force uh, to control that issue and so these numbers that we're referring to it comes out of the overall total number of arrests versus the total number of of use of forces and in 2019 we only arrested 4400 individuals out of out of billings with a, a population of roughly um, 110,000 so uh, that percentage there is right, right, just a little, right around four percent of the population actually is charged and/or arrested. And then we look at the use of force reporting statistics for that, and there was what 139, 131 uses of force. 100, 131 incidents uses of force uh, in those 4,400 arrests. So there's even a smaller percentage uh, of, of that use of force being used even during those arrests. So use of force actually by a law enforcement is, is pretty rare. Absolutely. <clears throat> and this just goes to the quality of officers, um, you know, that we hire, their communication skills, their, their ability to de-escalate, to um, connect with people. And to utilize a wide variety of resources is just outstanding. And, um, you know, again, uh, if people would look at our report, you would see the tools that we use. Um, you know, the two highest ones are um, officer presence and then taser. We, um, we do not go to deadly force unless absolutely, absolutely required to, to you know, to protect life. And, uh, and our numbers uh, prove that out, that we go to great levels to, um, to use uh, some lesser level of force. And one of the other matrix that we kind of look at when we're looking at, you know, whether use of force uh, and looking at the proportions to the arrest, but, you know, we look at the different types of activity that we respond to. Uh, like you alluded to earlier, we have proactive law enforcement uh, where they're actually out there engaging and then you have the reactive law enforcement. Um, and a large portion of these calls that these officers are going to, they're called there by someone uh, and, and they just have to deal with the circumstances that are presented to them. Yeah. On the, on the other hand, one of the areas that we look at is we look at our uh, traffic citations issued um, and, and the breakdown of that, and that's where you have a officer who is making a conscious decision to enforce some law, pull some vehicle over, see some type of behavior. And when we look at those and we break those down uh, percentages, those percentages actually go down to more accurately reflect demographically the community. Right. And, uh, and these are numbers that we are required to report to the state to make sure that we're not profiling on our, uh, on our traffic stops. So what we are required to do in Billings, I'm not sure what, what other departments uh, require their officers, but if you make a traffic stop 
you are required, uh, I'm just a traffic, I'm not involved in some case or call that you're on, you're required to generate some sort of paperwork, whether it's a warning or whether it's a citation. Uh, the days of the verbal warning um, are over and should not be taking place. Uh, and what we're looking for at the, at the end of the year when I look at this statistic is if the number of violations exceeds the number of traffic stops, then, uh, then I know that um, we are taking appropriate action. If it's the other way around, what the perception is is that I'm just stopping people looking for stuff, and then if I don't find them, I let them go. And that is the, the, the problem the, of the perception that we're profiling, that we're just, you know, looking for something to, uh, to arrest people for. And, uh, you know, the days of, uh, you know, I think every officer has, uh, you know, heard the, you know, the only reason you pulled me over is because I'm, you know, uh, I'm a minority or something like that. No, the reason I pulled you over is because your plates are expired or you were speeding. Again, we address behavior, um, not anything else. But the perception um, of, a, of a high number of traffic stops and a low number of, of written contacts uh, is that just that, that I am profiling, I'm looking around um, to, to ding something or ding, ding somebody for when they really didn't do anything to get stopped. So the numbers should be the other way around, that we did see a violation. And invariably, if I see someone run a stop sign, they may not have their license with them. They may not have their insurance. They may not be seat belted. Well, that one stop just generated three, three contacts, and so that's how we would look at that and and uh, and make sure. And then again, we uh, we extrapolate that to race, gender, how many people. Once again, um, unequivocally, the people that are getting stopped and and citations and warnings from the Billings Police Department are male whites, and again, that uh, you know that fits into our demographics. You know, and, and kind of moving forward a little bit with some of these these this data that we keep to kind of monitor our department and 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 largely we we do police ourselves. Can you kind of speak to some of the uh, internal investigations or our mentality as a department of how we make sure that we are are uh, upholding our duties and that we remain a healthy organization? Absolutely, and this is probably the most important function of the police department. Um, when I started as chief, we created a Office of Professional Standards. It is staffed by a, a captain, um, specially trained in internal affairs and uh, similar investigations. So we have a very experienced, um, and have, this is the, the third or fourth captain I've had in that position, very experienced in, uh, in investigations and police operations. And we take all complaints. Um, whether they are online, whether they're phoned in, whether they are anonymous. Uh, and what we're basically looking for are two things. We, we categorize our complaints as a class one, class two. Um, a class, uh, class, two, class one are the serious ones. You may have a civil rights violation, uh, criminal activity, something very serious. Class two is generally things of conduct, uh, you know, rude, uh, not following up on paperwork, things of that sort. Um, every complaint is reviewed by this captain, and uh, if it's one, a class two that can be handled by the officer's immediate supervisor, then it's referred there. But an, uh, an internal affairs is handled by uh, by the off or by the captain. Um, 
across the board in all the years that uh, this has been in place and, and we've gotten better every single year uh, with you know how we do things the police department has generated more complaints on officers than the citizens have and that indicates that we police ourselves and we hold ourselves accountable uh, and the statistics will bear that out um, you know very very elaborate report on uh, on things that we got into you know similarly what we track are officer commendations um, you know although we are in a negative based profession people really don't like it when we show up unlike our our brothers at the fire department um, you know generally something bad has happened or is going to happen but regardless um, you know we are receiving you know close to you know between 50 and uh, 80 com uh, commendations on our officers from citizens a year anywhere from you know just thanks for being polite very professional all the way to some sort of heroic action or somebody that made a difference in somebody's life and um, and it's just it's very very gratifying to get those things and it's gratifying to the officers as well you know I uh, you know we often don't get a lot of visibility unless we've done something wrong or something negative happens but you know there's been times where I've I've been sitting in a patrol car I've been standing around officers or been part of circumstances where uh, I thought to myself, I wish that the, the general public could see this going on. You know, when I was working night shifts, you know, you would have the, the whole shift there doing paperwork. We ran all night long and you'd have guys tagging four or five different guns. We put three or four burglars in jail and uh, like just lots of work was done. Guys are, you know, the camaraderie is great. Uh, you know, uh, when Detective Kaiser talked that lady off of the, the interstate bridge, uh, we got guys carrying Narcan now who respond and have, have you know, given the drug and recovered people from a, a serious overdose that could have been fatal. Um, and this stuff happens on a daily basis. We don't, we don't go around and, and, and touting our horn over it and, and making it, you know, pushing it out there. But this stuff happens every single day. These guys are out there and they're doing good. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you're, you're spot on with that. I've got two right now that, uh, you know, they went uh, to a burglar case, an elderly lady, house torn up a little bit lost some stuff broke things on their own time with their own money they went back to that house and fixed stuff for her and nobody knew about it I mean I'm, I just hear about it you know a while back that it filters through me but that that is not necessary not required not in their job description but it certainly speaks volumes for the quality of individual that are working at this department you know, and, and, and that reflects, I mean, they are reflective of our community. And, you know, a lot of people don't see it as well, but we have, a, we have a break room at City Hall. And almost every day of the week, somebody from the community is buying pizzas, buying sandwiches, sending cookies and food. Uh, and there's a, there's a massive amount of support from the community that comes in, and, and we're definitely very thankful for that. Yeah, certainly make it difficult to keep the weight down, but... Uh... <laughs> But uh, yeah, we're very appreciative. And, and you know, extrapolate that into other things. I, I received a $50,000 donation from, um, you know, the Breakfast Flakes, Mark and Paul and, on Cat Country and uh, other citizens who donated to our body camera program, which, uh, you know, again, is something that we, we have in place, but not, not for the entire department, simply because of finances. And you just have 
individuals, groups. I um, mean, followed, followed that up this week. I received a $5,000 check from an individual for the same thing. Uh, we're not soliciting things like that, but <clears throat> people are, are, uh, are very appreciative of what the officers are doing. They're happy with their police department, and they're happy to help, and I, I couldn't be more thankful for, for that. And that doesn't come, that doesn't just come. That, that happens because of the work the integrity, the ethics of the officers, and, and, and the way we go about doing our business. You know, and I think that's a really good kind of note to, to kind of end this on. Is there anything uh, that you want the listeners to know about the department, if there's one thing that they take away from this today uh, about the BPD? Well, I think that uh, I know a couple things. First, Rand, thanks for hosting this uh, outstanding format uh, that – you know, your police department and every employee, and we have 189 plus, <clears throat> including the animal control, our support services, <clears throat> um, and, you know, people that evidence and whatnot, they all live here. They have families here. They want to make this the best community possible, and they're doing everything that they possibly can to do that, uh, not only for themselves, but, but for every other citizen. Um, you know, they're going out there every single day. Uh, despite some of the difficulties and some of the national rhetoric that's going on, our officers day in and day out answer the bell and answer the bell uh, professionally uh, and, uh, and just do a great job. And, and I don't have to tout it. Uh, you know, you can see it in some of the big cases that, that are in the paper. You can see the work that's been done. You can see the professionalism. Uh, and again, we, we work very hard to, to, to earn the citizens' trust, to maintain it, uh, you know, we're not without sin. And, you know, people need to know that we're going to screw up. But if we do, um, I like my little mantra here, if we mess up, we're going to fess up, and then we're going to dress up, <clears throat> and we're going to move on. People may not agree with what, you know, how I handle discipline, but the fact of the matter is we'll be thoroughly investigated. It will be handled fairly. We're going to fix whatever it is we need fixing, and we're going to move on. Uh, and uh, and I think that that's been been very good. I mean, our officers understand what the expectations are, and they're high. Um, and uh, you know, the citizens uh, see that. They see that in our reporting, and they see that in in productions like this. Chief, thank you for the hour and a half of your time. Uh, for the listeners, if you've made it to the end of this, thank you. And uh, we will be digging into uh, more stuff than what we got in today. Thank you. Thank you.